starts with ambition. You want to change the world or you want to solve a particular problem, and that problem is valuable. And you have to really want it. Mm. And if you really want it, you will discover the skills that you need in order to be successful. Welcome to a very special episode of Analysis Paralysis. Today, I have the CEO and founder of Copper, John Lee. This is an episode that I've wanted to record for quite some time now. If you've listened to some prior episodes, you may have heard me mention Copper quite a bit. They're actually our largest software partner, and we're very deeply integrated with them in many different facets. They have grown substantially over the past three years. I think they've grown from about 20 or so employees up to just around 200 now. They have $87 million in venture backing, and they are growing extremely quickly. So here's an episode that he talks a lot about prior businesses that he's had success in, some of the struggles, the difficulties, what his day-to-day looks like, and he's just given a lot of great advice that's been super helpful to me. I've listened to this a few times now, and every time I've taken something new from it. So please enjoy the episode. I'm super happy to finally get to speak to you. We absolutely love your product and everything that you guys do. So I, I want to just ask a few different questions around this. I, I would love to start just kind of with your background. There's a lot that you've gone through, some successful exits, uh, and, and your, your history is very broad with a bunch of different things that you've done. So if you could maybe just run through that a little bit just to kind of set the stage for people that don't know your background, that would be great. Yeah, so I'm a local San Francisco Bay Area native, grew up in Cupertino, went to Berkeley. I uh, started my career actually in investment banking after earning my engineering degree at Cal. And, um, you know, did that for a couple of years, worked at Yahoo, uh, where I helped work on a number of search algorithms uh, in the early days back in 2003. Mm-hmm. And then I basically was a career entrepreneur since 2004. So my first company actually had to do with uh, paid search advertising. Uh, we were an advertising technology company that helped customers uh, get more customers through paid search. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we took principal risk and bought inventory. We're paying a, you know, a bounty if we were able to deliver a customer to our customer. And we built a $47 million business in two years without any venture financing. And uh, started out of our apartment in uh, Palo Alto. And uh, it grew from there. It was profitable from day one. Uh, so got really lucky. And then uh, we ultimately sold the company to Epic Media Group, which was a uh, private equity roll-up of a number of ad networks and ad tech companies. Uh, spent about a year in New York uh, with that company, left, traveled the world uh, for a year. And then I uh, started a video game company. So I've always loved playing video games. I still play games today. Civilizations is my favorite by far. <laughs> Uh, and we uh, basically uh, built Facebook games, and we built technology that could make a hits, hits, hits-making machine, so to speak. So we could mm-hmm. measure engagement, monetization, virality, and so forth. And then we ultimately uh, built the largest casino game uh, on Facebook called Casino City, 
uh, by daily active users, and then sold the company to Zynga. Wow. Uh, and Zynga, I, I bought the game called Sheffield, which was the largest game in the world by daily active players in 2012. Uh, and then I, after that, I left Zynga, took some time off again to have my first child, and then uh, decided that, you know, in life, you know, what did I really want to do? You know, I wanted to help people. I wanted to help the world be a more prosperous place. And I felt like that would be the best way for me to, to do, do, do that. And so we focused on CRM because every business wants to grow its revenue. And the best way to grow its revenue is really to help increase and augment sales. And so our mission is really to make CRM simple uh, so that everyone can be a better relationship maker, so that individuals can be more prosperous, so companies can be more prosperous, so entire nations and, and ultimately the entire world can be more prosperous. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up at Copper. Uh, and Copper is, for, for the benefit of your audience, uh, the only CRM that works for you. Uh, what does that mean? It's simple and easy to use. It looks and feels like Google. So there's very minimal cognitive overload to be able to understand how to use it. Uh, number two, uh, which merged with productivity, so G Suite. So we are the only recommended CRM by Google uh, to their 5 million customers. And that's because we basically place CRM right within Gmail, right within Docs, right in Sheets. Like wherever you do work for your customer, wherever you communicate with your customer, Copper is there providing contextually relevant information at the right time and right place. And three, we automate data entry. And this is the biggest reason why CRMs fail. According to Forrester, 47% of CRMs fail because of lack of adoption. So what we said is like, let's just make it easy for mm-hmm. customers, not just to use the system, but to actually get the data in the system, which is where you spend 95% of your time. And so by automating data entry, by ingesting your emails, your telephone calls, your text messages, your Zendesk tickets, you name it, we're able to provide a 360 view of your customer without your sales reps, without you, actually having to enter any information at all. And what that allows us to do is to really realize our vision around assistive software, that software ought to work for you. Software ought to tell you what is the next best action on a particular Mm -hmm. deal. And in in order for us to do that, we have to evolve CRM from simply just a database with a bunch of workflows on top of it to a tool that's able to take that accurate set of data that we've automatically populated identify patterns, and then be able to suggest a next step, whether it's, I just met with X, Y, and Z, I should add them to my CRM, to really understanding what is the behavior set in terms of what led to successful outcomes uh, in a particular set of deals, and then how do I map that on my current set of opportunities to make sure that uh, I put my best foot forward at every single step. Sure, sure. So the company has raised about uh, 87 million of venture financing. We have about 195 employees, mostly technical, based in San Francisco. Fastest growing CRM company in the world. Only CRM recommended by Google. Uh, more than 85% of our customers use Copper every single day. And when you compare that to like a Slack at 53%, yeah. 57%, you compare that to Facebook at 52%. You know, I've heard, you know, a much lower number, you know, on the Salesforce side. Hmm. Uh, I think we're doing something right here. Yeah, sure. I So I really want to take us kind of to that, that January of 2013 when you guys were starting Copper and, and go a little bit deeper on some of the things that you had mentioned. So when you were first coming up with the idea of like, let's jump into this, you know, this CRM space, which Salesforce already had such a strong foothold. And there's a lot of, you know, companies already in there. 
what was your differentiation kind of going into it? Was it like right after the bat, did you know that you wanted to partner with Google or that you were going to build to integrate in with Google? Was that the differentiator or or did that was that like a byproduct as you guys built out and you were looking for, you know, we want to be the easiest solution to use and something that people love? Was that more of a byproduct or or right off the bat? Yeah, so when you look at CRM, it's it's no doubt the largest and fastest growing enterprise software category at $42 billion. Um, and the biggest problem that we saw was I read a research report from Forrester Research that said 47% of CRMs fail because mm-hmm. of lack of adoption. That is the biggest issue. And when I dug further why, it was really because it was inconvenient, it was hard to use, it required way too much data entry. And it didn't actually help people sell more. It was like really a management reporting tool. And so the byproduct of solving that problem was how do we get in a situation where we can get almost all of the information in your CRM automatically? Well, naturally it made sense to partner and to integrate with productivity and so when we looked at the option of do we partner with Google, do we partner with Microsoft, we ultimately chose Google because it was on the forefront of technology, mm. right? They have pioneered basically bringing all the capabilities of Microsoft Office into the cloud in a hyper-collaborative way and making that data accessible via APIs that we can connect to mm. and being able to inject and be able to be uh, visually in the same spot as where you actually do your work. And so, you know, that had the added benefit of Google's growing incredibly quickly from from a G Suite standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. It's becoming the future of where people do work, right? That's where your personal email addresses, your personal productivity happens. When you're in a university, it's more likely than not you're operating on G Suite. New companies have adopted G Suite, and even old companies that are larger have adopted G Suite. And so we could both, A, solve the problem of the data entry problem that persists in CRM, which is why so many CRMs fail at such a high rate. But also, B, we could ride the wave of a really uh, exciting macro, which is that G Suite is becoming the de facto productivity Mm. suite for the world. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'd be curious what actually opened up a lot of these doors for you throughout your, your professional career. Because like take someone who's maybe getting started or very early on, it, you know, looking at your background, there's so much, so many credentials essentially that you have and, and so much proof of, of work and your ability. But what really was was one of those main things that opened up the doors um, for you? Was that the your history, like your, your successful past exits, the relationships that you built over time? Just like kind of, you know, where should maybe someone new be focusing their efforts on? Is it is it build something to try and sell it, or is it to build relationships or mentors? Or like it starts with ambition, right? Which is mm-hmm. that you want to change the world, or you want to solve a particular problem, and that problem is valuable, right? And you have to really want it. Mm. And if you really want it, you will discover the skills that you need in order to be successful. And so, you know, after my career at Yahoo, after my career in investment banking, like I was pretty much a numbers guy. Mm. And I was a math algorithmist, right? Yeah. I was not a salesperson. <laughs> and when you think about what it takes to be successful to build a business, it really comes down to one thing are you able to convince somebody to do something that you want them to do, right? Whether it's raising capital, whether it's joining their team, joining your team, 
And so I think the skill set that was really important for me to develop early on was like, first, I want it so bad. And then second, in order to get it, I needed money. And then I needed people. Hmm. And I learned along the way, just out of sheer hustle, that this is how I can go accomplish it. And so I think that that is really the key in terms of getting started. The first step is just getting started. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many people out there who are just scared. Like I've got this safe job and it's, you know, it's paying the bills and I'm getting promoted. I'm doing well within my job. I just don't want to leave. I don't, I just don't want to pursue my Mm -hmm. dream. It's like, I encourage you to go pursue your dream. You could do whatever you put your mind to. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've done so many different things in my career and Every step of the way, just because you don't have that accreditation, just because you don't have that job experience, at the end of the day, the job of an entrepreneur is to solve problems. Hmm. And if you're doing something new, you're doing something unique, which you likely are, you're going to have to solve them in a different way. Hmm. And so there's no amount of preparation that can actually prepare you to go do that. But if you just are focused and maintain that ambition, you work hard, you make the mistakes, you learn from those mistakes, you surround yourself around with mentors who have made those mistakes in the past, right? You see, you surround yourself with people that have been more successful than you have mm-hmm. uh, in your respective area, right? You will learn very, very quickly because if you want it bad enough, you will do whatever it takes to be successful. And I'm a huge believer in the notion of manifest destiny. If you believe it, it will come. You've got to put in the hard work. You've got to surround yourself with the right people, but you will make it happen. Well, so going kind of into this initially, was this self-funded, the first few employees, or did you immediately get some venture backing? Like, did you build a minimal viable product initially? Or Because I know so many people that want to get started, for example, they're like, well, what are the next steps, though? Like, I don't have $100,000 to throw into building an, an MVP. Um, am I supposed to go, go fundraising based on my vision and my idea? Like, what what is the first step that someone should take? And I'm guessing maybe you were in a different position than maybe the, the average person specifically going into copper. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell you, I think the more relevant one was my first company, right? Okay. So what I did was I, you know, honestly worked and I, uh, you know, was starting to work on the concepts of the business, you know, while I was working. And so I had a, I had cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. And we invested $10,000 each among my three co-founders into the business. And that's how we got it started. And fortunately, it was profitable, you know, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as I built my reputation and my capability, you know, I, I had some accreditation of having sold the company in the past. Uh, I was able to raise venture capital. That's not to say that you can't raise venture capital if you've never sold a company before. Mm-hmm. You just have to have a great idea. You have to be incredibly convincing, incredibly compelling. And uh, it has to be a large opportunity with a huge problem that something that you're doing or something, you know, uh, recent, right. Whether it's mobile technology, whether it's AI, whether it's whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, can be able to solve that problem. And so what I recommend is you, if it's a product type of company where you need an MVP, I would raise money, Mm. uh, simply put, uh, I would raise money I would do whatever you can to put on your sales hat and to just hustle and first start with pitching 
other entrepreneurs who have successfully raised money, continuing to get their feedback, and then start pitching the VCs. Mm. And I would go in order of reverse order of who you want to ultimately raise money from. Because the more practice that you get, you get great A, feedback in terms of your idea. And then B, you just get a lot more shots on goal and you start learning, okay, how do I tailor the pitch? Oh, there actually may be something fundamentally that I need to change about my strategy or the way that I'm approaching the problem. And you'll learn just through these conversations. So I would just encourage people who don't know where to get started, get that first business plan together, Hmm. right? Build a deck, start pitching it to other entrepreneurs, pitch it to your neighbor, pitch it to your mom, pitch Hmm. it to your friends, right? Then start pitching it to other entrepreneurs, then start pitching it to VCs. And ultimately, you can still raise funding, even if you don't have a history of success, but you have a great idea, you have a detailed plan, and you can raise seed capital. And now is a better time than any, probably in the past 17 years to 18 years to be raising seed money. There's just so much money that's out there looking to fund great ideas. And then once you get that seed money, then you can build the MVP. Then you can start getting showing the progress. Then you raise the Series A. Okay. You know, there's this saying among entrepreneurs, which is like, nothing ruins a good story like results. Hmm. So you definitely want to, you know, tell a great story and have a great vision and a great strategy and a great approach. Raise the money. Get Do it right right? Hire the right engineers, not like your cousin who took a, you know, knows a little bit of coding from college. You pay him, you know, 10 bucks an hour to go Mm. do something like build it right from the beginning. Okay. So, so you're essentially saying that if you're a product, you don't necessarily need to have that MVP out there before you start, you know, talking about your vision to other people. Cause I know so many people get stuck in that where it's like, I'm afraid to share my idea. I don't want it to be stolen. But at the end of the day, it's like you need to see if it's even a good idea by bouncing it off of people. And you're probably going to be the only one as passionate about that product as anyone. So don't be afraid of someone stealing it. You just need to start, you know, making those steps to move forward. But if you're a service business, though, because I think this is something that I could definitely relate more to. My first business was was definitely service because there's no overhead initially. And I could just kind of sell my labor hours in exchange for that, I was doing web development initially. So my question for you around being maybe more of the service business route, because I think that's where a lot of people start to at least start building that sales confidence and things like that without having to go and fundraise all this money. How do you deal with the initial hiring of the business? Because you've gone from you know a few employees at Copper to now over 200, essentially 200 employees. Um, how, how, like, when do you know that it's a good time to hire early on? When you have, you know, solid, you know, revenue coming in, some profitability, but you need to choose to maybe not pay yourself to instead hire an employee. Like wh- what has helped you in making those decisions as, as you've hired and, and grown your company? Yeah. So, so you have a long-term vision, right, of what you want to accomplish. Then you start sort of getting closer to near term. Okay, well, what are the things that I need to, to get done in order to secure financing or secure that next round, right? Um and then you start saying, okay, well, what skills do I have mm-hmm. that I could do? And what skills do I not have? And I would hire people to round out the skills that you do not have. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I'm 
technically I'm an engineer by training, but I haven't written a line of commercial code in my life. Uh-huh. So I, I, I could do product. I've done product management. So I had to hire my first set of engineers in order to go accomplish that. And I wanted to hire good engineers because I wanted to make sure it was built right from mm-hmm. the beginning. I needed to hire a visual designer and a product designer to be able to, to do it properly. And so the way I went about it at Copper was, okay, uh, I'm going to bring on board engineers who have built enterprise software before. Mm. Okay. Now I'm going to bring on a product designer who's built a CRM before. Brought on a guy for, I, I basically recruited away the lead designer uh, for a product that I had a lot of respect for. Uh, All right. Now that we had the product, it's like, okay, we're going to have to market the product. We have to generate demand. So then I recruited the head of online revenue uh, at DocuSign, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, early days were very much like an inbound focused, uh, low touch, you know, high velocity inside sure. sales model. Then I needed a salesperson. So I, I brought in the head of sales from uh, demand, um, from um, demand force, right? Which was an SMB uh, platform for dentists, uh, veterinarians and so forth. Oh, that's actually where Brittany so, worked. So I, okay. basically, yeah, I basically brought in the experts, right, okay. and let them teach me how to do something because I hadn't done enterprise sales before. Mm. I haven't done uh, product design for a CRM company before, but I had a vision, mm. and I knew these people could accomplish that vision for me. Okay, and that's when I brought in folks. Okay, and, and obviously it depends like how much money you have available to you, mm. right? So, you know, we raised a. Th- $3 million seed and we raised a $7 million uh, or $8 million series A. Hmm. And so I did have enough capital to be able to do that. Sure. But again, it just comes down to that ability to convey that vision and to sell that vision and to convince that investor to give you that capital. Hmm. Then it becomes convincing these experts of their respective fields to come follow you and build a team and a partnership with you uh, in order to go accomplish that. So, so I don't waste any time now. I, I just basically, when I recruit, I look for people like, all right, I need to solve this problem. Who's the best person to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go after and go recruit those people. Interesting. Cause like I, so I've talked to a lot of mentors over the years to kind of get that advice of like, do you hire someone green and train them? Cause you know, if you have a process and, and things like that, or do you hire an expert in the space, obviously hiring an expert, they're going to come with their own biases, their own way of doing things, which is good and bad. Um, probably better, especially if you're building a product, something like copper, but do you ever see a, a benefit to hiring someone more green and, you know, paying a little bit less and, and training them on your process? Or does that not really make much sense when once you start really growing? I think if you're replicating yourself, so, you know, as like in your business, you're the chief sales person, right? Mm. As well as, you know, you do probably a bunch of other things yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Get, the, get you know, fix the printer and, and all that. Yeah. Um, if you're replicating yourself or you're replicating somebody else, I think it's okay to go green mm. for someone who's hungry, who's smart, who's ambitious. But if you're trying to hire for someone for a role that you have no expertise in, uh-huh. you are better off hiring experience mm. in that section. Mm. Okay. That's, that's a very uh, useful kind of break point between those two. That, that adds a lot of context and that, that helps me substantially as well. Um, so in regards to everything that you've done at Copper, 
what accomplishment are you most proud of essentially as the CEO and everything that you've done at specifically this company? It's the team and the culture Mm. for sure. I mean, I think we've built a phenomenal team, people who are incredibly dedicated. They're smart. They're focused on achieving the vision and that we have a really unique culture here. You know, it's, it's about accountability. It's about results. It's about ambition. It's about winning as a team. It's about taking good care of our customers. Mm. Well, so with that, essentially, I'd be curious because I, from what I understand too, as you guys were smaller, you were in this SMB space and naturally you kind of move up market, um, you know, mid-market and then eventually probably enterprise. And from what we've seen with Salesforce in the past is that they kind of totally abandoned the SMB space and then they kind of started realizing, oh shoot, this is kind of important because small businesses start, they become unicorns and they're staying on whatever software often like CRM, whatever they pick right off the gate. So from what I understood and what I read about you is part of that culture is that you want to help people. You want to help small businesses. You still, you know, you, you, you like small businesses and really want to be a tool for them as well. So how do you grow copper to move up market while still keeping your roots in that SMB space with, with product development and just general, you know, where the product is moving? Yeah, I think it goes back to our mission, right? We want, we want to make it simple for you to build great business relationships. Hmm. And that simplicity extends whether you're a 100-person organization or a 1,000-person organization to a one-person organization. Hmm. And so that DNA is always uh, tried and true, like within Copper. Okay. And yes, I love selfishly small businesses because hmm. I've been there. Mm. And I run a, a rel, I run what I guess would be considered a small business as well now, and so I like helping other businesses be successful. And so one of the biggest challenges is that you have companies like you know not to be named, right, who have become very big. They mm-hmm. focused on the enterprise. As a result, their products have become you know Frankenstein to some degree, sure. right? Incredibly complex, not really usable for small to medium-sized businesses, can't be deployed quickly, incredibly expensive. And so we've stayed true to our vision of being able to provide a simple way, or mission of providing a simple way for people to build great business relationships. And we have to basically make that our mantra, and that is our mantra. And that is how we evaluate the success of every feature. That's how we evaluate the success of how we're engaging with our customers, whether it's online or whether it's in person. It's how we measure and engage ourselves and evaluate ourselves in the way that we, we service our customers as well. Hmm. So I, I'd be curious because, like, of course, you can't mention any company names and things like that, but I think there's a very clear distinction between two different paths of going as an all-in-one solution, almost a, a, I think they, they codename it PSA, professional service automation uh, tool. So that could do your accounting, that could do, um, you know, uh, marketing automation and everything. In addition to like, hey, we're also a CRM. Whereas what I've seen with, with you guys in Copper specifically is right out of the gate, you're like, we want to be the best CRM out there. And how do you, I'm curious straight, you know, from you, how you view an all-in-one solution versus what I'm seeing, kind of what Copper's approach is, is focus on what we're great with and let's leverage, you know, the best in-class software as a service as an integration 
versus as a feature within the product? I think the most important thing that any young, fast-growing company needs to do is stay focused. Mm. And that's why we've decided to stay focused in the SFA side of things. Uh, and we partner and use, you know, we partner with companies like yours to help uh, ultimately integrate our service with other services. Mm. And so we believe there's a best-in-class stack, right? Whether it's on the marketing side, then there's a sales side where there's copper, there's the support side, there's the customer analytics side. Um, all of those things, we believe they're best-in-breed products that are out there that we can integrate with. And so we're focused on providing the single best and simplest to use way for customers to build better relationships with their customers. Okay. Great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I love that, that relationship era as you guys rebranded to Capper and going that approach and you started adding features within the product, uh, simply adding people's faces uh, when notes are being left and things like that versus just having a little note icon. And it adds so much context around it. And it just feels more like you have a relationship with the people that you're doing business with versus them just being, you know, a, a name on a piece of software. So I love the vision that you guys have going there. And I think the Copper rebrand and everything you've been doing with the relationship era is, a, is an awesome thing for this industry specifically. And yeah. um, I, I'd be curious too, like the next steps of Copper. So it's like, with machine learning and AI kind of being more accessible within Google Cloud, and there, this is kind of like this big uh, area that that everyone's talking about, AI, 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 but no one's really leveraging it too, too much. But how do you think this technology will affect specifically the CRM space? And how do you see CRMs essentially being within the next five to 10 years? Will they look anything like their current solution or will they be totally different? Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're deploying some of this ourselves, right? So one of the uh, things that I want to do is I want to give every person the set of best practices and patterns of behavior to build the best business relationships to ultimately close deals, mm. uh, to develop a deeper partnership, to look at space of potential companies to acquire, you name it, right? Whatever mm -hmm. flow that uh, your company is focused in. And so we want to create this pattern where, for example, you get an, an email and you should add that person as a contact or, hey, I just visited with this person yesterday because we found out from your calendar that you had this meeting. What, what were the follow ups? And then ultimately, what we want to be able to do is to identify those patterns and use machine learning to say, I've engaged in M permutation ways across N different deals mm. and these deals have ultimately been successful because they followed the following pattern well let me now layer that on top of your opportunity set the current opportunities that you're working and figure out what are the specific steps that i need to take in order to be the best expected value of closing those deals mm. and so that's what we're doing on our side with respect to ai and machine learning okay. and the tools that google gives us are amazing uh you know it's we don't have to hire uh, as many, you know, data scientists and machine and algorithmists, basically, sure. uh, in order to do this anymore. We could just use it as a service. And so, you know, where I think, you know, CRM is going to go in the future is today, CRM, as evidenced by the folks that 
have the most market share. Mm -hmm. They're simply just databases when you think about it. They're relational databases with workflow on top of it. Mm -hmm. They don't actually work for you. And what I believe in is there's a the vision of I believe in the vision of assistive software, software that actually recommends what you should do next. And it's as simple as the use case I mentioned to you earlier, Mm -hmm. which is I just walked out of a meeting there should be a follow-up. I should add this person to CRM to be as sophisticated as knowing what events you should do. So I think the future of CRM is going to be one where your CRM is actually going to talk to you. Your CRM is actually going to recommend your next steps. Uh, Your CRM is actually going to automate and do things on your behalf because they've seen prior patterns in the past. And your CRM is going to be able to figure out what the best drip campaign is and how to answer those campaigns. Uh, interesting. Be able to record, transcribe phone calls, right? Mm. Be able to summarize them in the notes so that you don't have to do that yourself. Mm. So I, that's what I see. CRM, that's where I see AI in the future for CRM is not just making your life easier, but actually taking that complex data data stream making sense of it, identifying the patterns of success, and ultimately recommending what you should do next. Love it. I can't can't wait for it. And I feel like you guys are definitely at the forefront of that. So I'm super excited. Um, it's one of the main reasons that we have partnered, uh, put our business behind yours and, and you know love it so much. So uh, we're running out of time here. So I want to just kind of ask a couple questions that are a little outside of copper and more about your life as an entrepreneur. Um, and then we can kind sure. of close things up. So out of curiosity, uh, what is your favorite feature of Copper specifically that you use in your day-to-day life? And then what does your actual day-to-day look like? And what does a productive day look like for you? Yeah, so my favorite feature would be, I mean, it's a pretty simple feature, but, uh, you know, the preview, when I'm writing to somebody in Gmail, I can see a preview of that person. Sure. Uh, if, I've, if they're in CRM, then I can see all the historical interactions uh, and emails and calendar events and all that kind of stuff. But also, you know, before I actually have added them into CRM, I could see like their LinkedIn profile. I could see mm-hmm. information about the company. And that just provides me with immediate context of who this person is. What is the potential opportunity that we could build here? Like, how can I develop a relationship with this person that ultimately benefits copper and ultimately benefits that person? And if I want to add them to CRM, I just click one button, add the contacts. It's already pre-filled all of the information for me. And then it auto-populates and I could discover, oh, it looks like one of my sales reps has already been in touch with this person. They've discussed X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the things that I think that is, uh, that I, that I love most about our product is really that instant gratification of not, and that instant, uh, delight of not having to uh, enter data. The second question, uh, I forgot actually the second question. Just what your your day-to-day looks like. So it's like, um, you know, I'm at a small business and I have a very random day-to-day that happens and then you kind of get more structure as you grow. But now that you are running the head of a 200-employee company and you guys have venture backing and you have product and all of these things going on, how much do you involve yourself with product? How much, like what what do you actually spend your day-to-day doing? doing and what is an actual productive day look like for you yeah so you know the first half of my week the first two days of my my week are focused on one-on-ones with my executives that report Mm -hmm. directly to me 
And that's where we talk specifically about what their charter is, what their goals are, and how they're progressing against their goals. Uh, that also includes like a staff meeting that I have with my team where we discuss, you know, challenges and uh, ways that we're going to figure out how to solve certain problems. Uh, and then the rest of the week, you know, typically is, is very much focused on, I'm looking at my calendar right now, a mm. lot of external meetings. Mm. So that's focused a lot with partners, uh, with people that I'm recruiting, uh, with customers, uh, whether they're existing customers or prospects. Um, but, you know, I think where where sort of my job has become more interesting uh, just simply because I'm not doing a lot of the heavy lifting anymore on the day to day is I'm able to sit back and I'm able to meet with people and, I'm, you know, meet with other CEOs as well for other mm-hmm. enterprise software companies to really help formulate the strategy. And so in terms of product, it's less like, oh, I want to move this pixel in this, ah, this way sure. or I want to have this particular feature Hmm. i go to my chief product officer it's like i need you to solve this problem Hmm. for our customer and then i need you to propose those solutions and then i need you to be able to provide an objective measurement so that we know that we've in fact solved that problem Hmm. and so i'm less deciding what to do uh, as opposed to where we're going if that Hmm. makes it if that makes sense yeah oh absolutely and so that is that is how my my job has changed as the company has gotten larger hmm. um, and it it's more important for me to really have that circle of advisors have that circle of uh, my network who can who can I can bounce ideas off of right hmm. and my internal executive team right that I bring in and have expert like my head of product you know ran service cloud at product at Salesforce, right? Mm. My CMO was the CMO at Dialpad and he was the VP of marketing at Zora and NetSuite, right? Mm. Like I can bring that collective wisdom together to help figure out the strategy and then leave my team to go execute Mm. and allow them to do that. But a perfect day would be, you know, a handful of those type of meetings where we've, I've solved, maybe I've made two important decisions that Mm. day two to three important decisions. And then I've met and I've learned from a customer, just like the conversation that we had prior to the start of this interview around what are the things that you need to be successful, Mm -hmm. where I've learned something that needs needs to happen to make our customers ultimately more successful Mm -hmm. and for me to be able to then communicate to my team to make sure that they solve that. Mm -hmm. And then it's getting home. You know, I normally don't get home time for dinner with my family but mm. uh, I'll get I'll get home around seven or so I'll spend about an hour and a half or so putting the kids to bed okay. I'll get right back on email to clear out the inbox mm. do some thinking read a book maybe watch some Netflix and then go to sleep that's great I, I'm curious do you actually have someone on your team that runs through some of your email and, and you just pay attention to the high level things or or is your email actually you so I actually, yeah, so I have an EA, which is actually one of the most, okay. you know, I, I invite people that who can afford an EA to absolutely 100% hire an EA okay. because the most valuable asset you have is your time. Hmm. And so my EA actually reads my inbox. She marks and flags all the emails that are important to me because I get, you know, thousands of yeah. emails, you know, a week, sure. right? Sure. And so um, she actually flags the emails for me to respond 
she organizes my calendar. You know, she sets all the appointments. She gives me contacts before I walk into meetings. Mm. And this just allows me to be a lot more productive. That's incredible. That's great. Yeah, definitely something that I, I would love to eventually get to. Is there a certain size that uh, you, you feel like you should get to before you go that path? Or if you have a few employees and, and you see the, the benefit of being able to get an EA to help you know, organize your day? Yeah, I just it just comes down to probably a pretty simple math equation, right? Which is like, given what the output that you can have on your time, mm-hmm. how much can an EA save you? Sure. Okay. Oh. And then multiply that by the amount of output, total output you have. And if it, if the cost of the salary is below that, then you need you should get an EA. Mm. That's great. Love it. So like the if final... you're literally burning the yeah. yeah. No, you're you're literally burning the. Oh, if you're burning the candle on both ends, like twenty four seven, then yeah, the EA can save you thirty percent of your time sure. because you don't have to schedule meetings yeah. or she he or she can filter your your inbox. I mean, it it just makes obvious sense, right? Yeah. You're gonna be much more well slept. You're gonna be much more organized. You're gonna have less anxiety of where you need to show up at what mm. time and who you're talking to. Um, and you'll be able to get rest, make better decisions. Uh, then, you know, if I were to do it all over again, um, having raised venture capital, the first person I would hire is actually an EA. Wow. That's, that's a very powerful statement. Love it. Great. Cool. The, the final question I have for you kind of bounces back to you is, you know, what is one takeaway that you want listeners of this episode to leave with after everything we've kind of discussed? Manifest destiny. You can do it. Uh, you put anything you put your mind to, you can accomplish it. And um, just realize that entrepreneurship is a journey. It's not a destination. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. That's okay. It's how you pick yourself up. It's how you learn from your mistakes that matter. It's the people that you surround yourself with. And if you really believe in what you're doing, like you will do whatever it takes to win. And don't let the ups don't let the downs there's there's going to be 10 times more downs than the ups but Mm. those ups make it all worth it and in the end make it happen manifest destiny if you dream it you can make it happen great i love it hey thank you so much for your time i appreciate it this has been an awesome conversation and i really look forward to continue working together and uh, watching copper grow and evolve over time so thank you so much You're welcome. Great. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for your time, and we will speak later. Perfect. Great. All right, man. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Analysis Paralysis. I really hope you enjoyed it. I'm super excited to continue the podcast and to bring on more great guests like John Lee here. And I wanted to ask one quick thing for the holiday season. If those of you who are subscribed can shoot me an email at abass at aparalysis.com just to let me know why you subscribe, maybe what episodes you've enjoyed the most or what type of content you're most interested in. I would really love to gear this more and more toward those of you who are regularly listening to it. So if you can shoot me an email or just message me on Twitter, Alex H. Bass. So thank you so much for listening and I look forward to hearing from you.